Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, with the biggest release of the year upon us, we review the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, and ask, will it really save the cinema? English actress Joe Hartley on being a complicated mother in the new movie Sweetheart, and the magic of working on Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. Plus, travel writer Fionn Davenport chats to me about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. As autumn slowly falls upon us, it was an autumnal feel to the proceedings this week I think you'll all agree a lot of radio people start by talking about the weather I I know it's a strange thing to do but where I'm talking to you from I'm looking out a window and I'm looking at skies that are darkening so uh, I guess I'm in, in an autumnal state of mind but a good state of mind now listen before we get to the business at hand, I'm continuing to get correspondence about the new Sopranos movie, The Many Saints of Newark. Now, I know we've been discussing this for weeks, but I think the way the world is at the moment, people are taking a long time to go back to the cinema. So I still have a lot of people in touch with me who went to it last week, The Many Saints of Newark, The Sopranos movie. And I'm sorry to say, the consensus, certainly from people who listen to this show, is that they were a bit disappointed with the movie. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that. I, I'm, I'm surprised because I really enjoyed it. I did caveat that it's not not a Sopranos movie per se there's a Sopranoisms in it but it's it's mostly a standalone thing and I think it's a pretty good gangster movie but I continue to get a lot of people saying it was the first movie they went to see in a long time in the cinema and they were disappointed so I'm sorry to hear that I really am but uh, I enjoyed it and and you know I'm open on Twitter you can email me screentime at newstalk.com if you'd like to continue to share your views on the many saints of Newark or depending on when you're listening to this show if you've seen Bond do let us know now in TV this week I watched this well uh, I think she always made allowances for me anyway but I I, I find myself making allowances for her I'm, I'm learning you know, that there's two of us in this. Chase is a bit late, isn't it? 45 years to be learning that you have to make make allowances for someone else. But I, I, I'm definitely... Well, look at It's a help. The, the pubs are closed, you know. You didn't bring that one up. You know, I have, I have a habit of disappearing across the street, you know, at a minute's notice. Can you get a divorce when you're 56 years married? We've had our ups and downs and we're fighting, permanently fighting, but I wouldn't be without him for the world. And well, we're not too bad because there's two of us, even if you're fighting, at least there's somebody here. Yeah, now that's a clip from Cocooned, which was on Monday night on RT1. And that was some of the very lively characters from it. Now, I was really surprised by this because... I read about it and I thought, I don't really want to watch that. The idea was that it was elderly people and how they got through lockdown. And that's all I knew about it. And I guess, you know, where a lot of our heads are at now, you, you know, of course you want to pay tribute to the tragedy that was and is COVID. But a lot of us, I'm not sure, are in the mood for that at the moment. We're, we're looking forward that maybe we're coming out of that. That said, I then slowly realised... 
it was Ken Wardrop who directed it, who made it. And he's given us everything from making the grade to undressing my mother, his and hers. He's just a brilliant documentary maker. He's been on the show before. So then I was a lot more interested. And it was such a surprising, almost joyful piece of TV in some way. Because what Ken did in this movie was get together a collection of elderly characters who were some of them were living by themselves some of them were couples but none of them were seeing anyone really as most of us weren't back in the heady days of last March and April and he has them mic'd up through their phones it seems and we just see them through their front room or their bedroom windows or their kitchen windows and they're just talking about how they're getting on during lockdown particularly the first lockdown then it switched a bit to when there was an easing of restrictions last summer and we saw them leave their houses, then they went back inside for, you know, you run out of counting them, but just after Christmas last year when we went into another lockdown and they were doing all sorts of things like Chain Fonda videos and watching Trump and complaining about him and bemoaning not going to the pub and watching the Big Bang Theory and just what came across was, you know, I don't mean to sound patronising, but the indomitable spirit of some of these people. And they were just glorious characters and life-affirming characters. And people who, by their own admission, felt that they didn't have that long left on the earth. And yet they were grabbing life with, you know, both hands in a pandemic from their kitchens and from their front rooms. It was joyful TV. It was It was dark at times, but there was such a great streak of dark humour through it I, I thought it was wonderful I was, I was really surprised so Cocooned it's on the RTE player and it's absolutely delightful now look we better get to Bond yes you're listening to Screen Time and we turn to the week's new releases and there's two but really there's only one poor Jake Gyllenhaal barely gets a look in because Bond after a very long wait is back with Daniel Craig's Final role at the helm in No Time to Die, which I saw earlier in the week, but more importantly, our very own special agent, Mark Ryle, saw too. Mark, hello, sir. Hey, John. How you doing? Look, this is the... I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. It's lovely of you to ask. This is the most, you know, overdetermined movie in, in a very long time. There's all this stuff about cinemas resting on it and all. It's hard yeah. to know where to start, but yeah, top, yeah, it... to top line, did you enjoy it? Oh, it, it's it's incredible. Good. I mean, the good news is that it is it's a it, it's a really really good Bond movie. But more more so, it's just a it, it's a great movie it in is, its own right. I think it is indeed. So listen, I'm really keen that we talk about this, but I'm also really keen yep. that we don't give spoilers. So if you can give us a general sense of what's going on, but at the same time not ruining anyone's no. experience who's about to watch I it this weekend. I would not dream of it. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it starts off with a, a very, very lengthy pre-credits sequence, and it kicks off with this this, this bondless prologue um, in icy Norway, and Leah seduces Madeleine Swan as a small child, and she's having a run-in with Remy Malik's villain, and um, this it, it it's a really nice little prologue. It's very, very stylish, and there's elements of horror, and there's elements of the girl with the dragon tattoo. And then it jumps forward to, I think, just after Spectre around 2015, and Bond and Madeline are enjoying some blissful On Her Majesty's Secret Service type vibes in southern Italy, and then Spectre show up and wreck the gaff. Um, that all happens before the opening credits, so I think I, I will probably we should probably leave it there. 
Yeah, um, and, and I'll just say then that after that, Bond is taken out of retirement and goes on a madcap pursuit of a really bad guy played by Remy Malik. And I think we've yeah. said all we need to say in terms of plot. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm happy with <laughs> that. Let's not give away the ending. No, no, no. no. But I think that's fine because there's loads to be watched if we leave it at that. There's, so there, there certainly is loads. Let's uh, start with the prologue then, because I just thought the prologue was brilliant because it's about 20 minutes long. And then the credits came up and I was like, oh, yeah, that's just the first opening salvo. Yeah, I know it is. It's it's something else. We should. Yeah, it is a very, very long movie. It's two hours and, 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 and 43 minutes. Mm -hmm. I've always said that if you have a movie longer than two hours, then you better have a damn good reason for it. But um, it's it's not it doesn't ever feel like it's it's bloated no um it's kind of it, it it's it it's bookended by these huge epic set pieces obviously but the the middle hour kind of hits the pause button on all of that all out action and i didn't not have a problem with that at all i don't think you can operate at 11 the whole time you need to take a breather well it's funny you say that and i said this earlier in the week on the hard shoulder but i went to the pub beforehand and had one drink and at about 8.30, the movie started at 8, I was dying to use the bathroom, but I didn't. I hung on till the movie nope. was over because I didn't want to miss anything. Uh, yeah. And even though the action may have not been as full throttle all the time, it was still relentlessly entertaining the whole way through. It was, yeah. No, no Time to Pee was the working uh, title, I think. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, yeah, so I think it it's... It's it is very much a Bond movie for 2021. Yeah. I think which I think is only right. Um, the low point. Neither I think neither neither you nor I would be super fans. No, that that's fair to say. What what I I, I know we're talking about you, but one thing I wanted to say was that I I'm not a Bond super fan, but I've seen them all and I enjoy some of them more than others. I've never yeah. quite understood why everyone thought Daniel Craig was so good as Bond or those people who did, why they thought that. But yeah. I did in this one and I thought, wow, yeah, yeah, why, yeah. why didn't he bring that game to all the others? Because there was a kind of, there was a lot of dimensions to him. He was funnier than I'd seen him before. He was also quite emotive at times. Did you agree? Yeah, I would. I would, particularly coming off the back of Spectre, which mm. I think was 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 not a good movie at all. Um, you, you can't, help but see Bond movies because they're never off the telly. Mm. Um, I, for me, I think the low point was Pierce Brosnan's run because those batch of movies, they were stuck in this formulaic rut of, you know, stupid gadgets and um, cringy one-liners and supercar porn for want of a better term. Mm. And then, of course, Jason Bourne came along and um, shone a light on how ridiculous the Bond movies looked in the 21st century. And at the same time, you had Mission Impossible doing the high-tech gadgets and the big action set pieces better. Um, so when Daniel Craig got the gig, I think around 2005, the only option really was to move with the times. Mm. And Casino Royale was the movie that convinced me that it was okay to to come back to Bond. Yeah. Um, and I think with the odd wobble, um, Spectre, the last movie, was not good. I think Craig's run has been very, very solid. Mm. Yeah. But, well, yeah. But uh, do you agree this is his best one? Um, I'm not sure if it's his best one because there are like Casino Royale is a really, really good movie. Mm -hmm. And it came at a time where nobody was expecting it to be a really yeah. good movie. And what, what well, is true. in what that did was and it this uh, no time to die has it as well. It brought back that sense of peril that was yeah. missing. Um, 
you know, there didn't seem to be any risk involved mm. um, previously because you know that nothing major was going to happen and he was probably going to have some, I think it was Eddie Izzard who says you never see him returning the gadgets that he never uses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we should um, say then, just on the gadgets and the action set pieces, they're all here and they're brilliant. Uh, yeah, no? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> they are. That's not. Re- yeah. I, I. I. They are. Okay. I mean, that kind of thing. When, when they're on TV, those. 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 The, the, the gadget bit just annoys me. Um. I think that, like to talk about what overall. I think the major developments that have been made to the character in No Time to Die. I think they're both. They're both appropriate and they're. They're. They, they're legitimate. And what was surprising to me was the the willingness to take risks with the character. Mm. Um. And this one doesn't stick to that formula that I was talking about. And when I think, I think Skyfall would be a high point as well. When I think back on that movie, what sticks with me is the bit in Scotland at the end. Mm -hmm. And by Bond standards, it's fairly low key stuff, but it was very, very powerful because it was kind of storytelling on a personal level. And I think the personal aspect of this character, that's where the real gold is. And there's a good bit of that in No Time to Die as well. Yeah, there absolutely is. Yeah. And, and the other thing is yeah. that that um, uh, the, the problem with Spectre as well, that Craig didn't look like he wanted to be there. Um, I think he was just sick of playing the part. Yeah. And especially when you look at that what, what he did around that time as well and the enjoyment he was having in stuff like Knives Out or mm-hmm. Logan Lucky. Um, it was obvious that he wa- he just wanted done with the role. But he, I have to say his his commitment and passion is certainly back here. And Craig has shown up for work and he really, really does sell this. Absolutely. Now, there is a female agent in it who I thought was brilliant. And I also, I just thought the female characters in this were great. And they weren't just tokenistically, we better update the female characters for the Bond universe. Like yeah, they yeah. had a purpose. Uh, is it Lakshana Lynch or is yeah. it Anna de Armas that bo- you're talking bo- about? Bo- sorry, both of them. Uh, yeah, were, were, yeah. But they were proper characters in their own right who weren't just foils to Bond or, or, or yeah, you yeah. know, love objects or whatever. Like they were yeah, well-rounded yeah. characters and they were cool. They were. I think Anna de Armas must be making history because she's a female character in a Bond film who comes in does her job really well and then leaves. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't say something stupid and try to climb on top of her. Yeah. And she's not killed. She just does her job and they shake hands. He says, "Well done," and and she's off. That must be a first. Yeah. And it, it that kind of draws attention to how creepy and weird the Bond movies are. That something like that is noteworthy. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. And tell me this. I like at times I thought it was reminiscent of some of the classic Bonds from the sixties and seventies. You know. Did you yeah, feel I, that they were trying to maybe evoke that at times? I didn't. I mean, I suppose the last act is a bit, you know, uh, hollowed out secret lair uh, in a volcano kind of thing. But no, I, I prefer it when they, it tries to, you know, bring it up to date and it doesn't try to do too much of that. Um, like Shanna Lynch, that character who plays, she plays another double O agent. Mm. Um, she She's fine. I think she's she could have, I would have been happier if she was a bit more um, drawn out than she was. Yeah, she kind of fulfills a need, um, but I would have liked to have seen a bit more um, flesh on 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 around her part. Well, I thought yeah. it was fleshy enough, but we always disagree on these matters. I thought Which, Ray Fiennes was very good as well. Yeah, he is. Yeah, we should probably talk about Remy Malik. Uh, yeah, Remy Malik as a villain, we're not going to say much more than that. What did you think of him? Oh, uh, he's rubbish. Did you think so? <laughs> oh, he's the too, weak link too here, much, definitely. Too much pouting and. 
he's so he's just he he's not he, he's not weird and threatening like Mads Mikkelsen was in Casino Royale. Oh, I thought he's, he I thought he was really weird and threatening. But was he, he's just out by yeah, him. but he's just weird. <laughs> It's <laughs> just odd. And I tell you, I have no idea what the motivation was behind his big evil scheme. I mean, I know what the evil scheme was, but I still couldn't tell you why uh, he was he was doing we're, it. We're veering close towards spoilers. So, let's yeah, I'm not going to. I'm yeah. just saying I, I, I was the motivation wasn't really, you know, um, well um, signposted for you. Besides, besides just plain evil. Yeah. I mean. He certainly sounds like a bad villain. If if Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon were sitting in a cafe in Italy doing impressions of cliched Bond <laughs> he, villains, he might be right up there. They would sound like Remy Malik, yeah. yeah. Well, listen. Despite you know little tinkering at the edges that you weren't happy about, you did enjoy this. So, what would you say stars was? Yeah, um, I'm going to give it four and a half because I just think the whole thing works. Now, I might watch it again the Christmas after next on TV and change my mind, but at the moment, I'm giving it four and a half. Well, funny you should say that because I was thinking this is a four, but then I was thinking, no, no, I'm, and like I said during the hard shoulder, I'm veering towards five. So it's not a perfect movie, but it's damn, 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 damn entertaining. So I'm going to give it four and it a half is. as well. Uh, I had the same dialogue with myself. Yeah. And I, th- you know, I you talk to people, you know, about movies a lot. And the amount of people who said to me they've booked tickets or they're going this weekend, it is literally going to be the first movie a lot of people have gone back to the cinema to see and I don't think they will be disappointed now poor Jake Gyllenhaal has to contend with the fact that his new movie is out on Netflix this Friday the same week Bond is released he's in a movie called The Guilty we don't have a huge amount of time left but tell us quickly what The Guilty is about do it quick yeah this is it's a remake of a Danish movie from 2018 and it is directed by Training Days Antoine Fuqua and it's scripted by True Detectives Nick uh, Pizzolato and it was shot under COVID restrictions which can either be a blessing or a curse and what the guilty makes a virtue of those constraints and it makes them an integral part of the storytelling method Um, it's a single location thriller with more or less a cast of one and it plays out in real time and it's but you say what Jake Gyllenhaal is doing yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal, he's a, he, he plays Joe. He's a cop who's been suspended from active duty pending the outcome of a murder trial in which he is the defendant. And Joe's been relegated to answering 911 calls in an emergency call center. Um, he's very arrogant and abrasive, and he doesn't really lend itself um, to you know this line of work. Mm-hmm. And combined with the pressure of a murder trial hanging over him, um, then he takes a call from a woman who appears to have been kidnapped by her ex-husband. And over the next hour and a half, he, he pulls out all the stops to try and help her. Yes. Now, it's very much a COVID movie in that it's it's a single piece and you could you can nearly see the rivets of that. That They do have famous voices like Ethan Hawke's in there, Riley Keough making the calls. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you what you thought. I thought it was pretty decent as a, as a one-man thriller. And if you're going to have a one-man piece, Jake Gyllenhaal carries it off pretty well. Yeah. I agree. I, I think he's Gyllenhaal. Uh, I think is fascinating. He, he he pops up in stuff like the last Spider-Man movie, but he also gets away with doing left to center stuff like Nightcrawler and Wildlife. He's yeah. very, he's he's a really interesting um, actor, and and the character is is it, it's rife with paranoia and resentment and and he, all this bottled up anger, and he Gyllenhaal has riddled this character with ticks and quirks, and it's interesting at first, but it eventually it gets tiresome. the The problem, though, is the all the action is played out over the phone, mm. which, um, 
it's a lean and very defective effective device for the first hour but i think it runs out of road in the in the later stages um when we're left listening to action being described which never which is never ideal there's a lot of oh no he's picked up a knife uh, he's coming towards me and i think the constraints of shooting under under covid they become apparent in the last half hour which is it's just kind of a shame mm, yeah it's the same director who directed him in the movie southpaw as far as i know it is Antoine Fuqua, yeah, yeah, I think so. He did say Pod. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah, was a yeah. pretty decent boxing movie that I enjoyed. Anyway, so look, what would you say stars wise for the guilty? Um, I'm going to give it a two. I think it's good Ooh. for the first hour, but it, it, I think it fails to stick the landing. Mm. Mm. You see, I thought within the confines of all you say, it was still a worthy watch. So I'm going to give it a three. That's the guilty on Netflix from this Friday. That's the 1st of October, if I'm not mistaken. But the biggest show in town is very much No Time to Die. Daniel Craig's last outing as 007. Mark gave it four and a half. and I gave it four and a half. We are in total agreement, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Up next, English actress Joe Hartley on her new movie Sweetheart, working with Ricky Gervais and giving up being an air hostess for a life in front of the camera. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talk's TV and movie show. Now, opening next week, aside from all the Bond business we've been talking about, is a very different movie, but a very good new movie. It's the sweet and poignant coming of age movie Sweetheart, which sees a socially conscious 17 year old spending a week with her family in a British seaside park. For socially conscious AJ, played by Nell Barlow, planning a gap year to knit jumpers for elephants is much more appealing. So she reluctantly joins her mother and two sisters and her brother-in-law for what she thinks will be a week of hell. However, she sets her eyes on a resident lifeguard and things start to change and she wonders, has she possibly met the girl of her dreams? Now, AJ's mum is played wonderfully by Joe Hartley, who we spoke to a couple of years ago for uh, Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. And of course, Joe has starred in all sorts of TV and film projects from Eddie the Eagle to This Is England, 86, 88 and 90. And of course, David Brent, Life on the Road and Afterlife. And I'm delighted to say she joins me on the line now. Hi, Joe. How are you? Hello, it's good to be back. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Now, listen, the last time I spoke to you, you were playing another mum to James in Afterlife. So are you worried you're being typecast as a a mummy, albeit a yummy mummy? (laughs) Thank you. That's nice. Well, they all have their purpose, I guess. I mean, work's work, isn't it? And you get into play these great roles. So they're very important people, mums. I do play other things. Of course yeah, you do. I, do. I do play other roles, not, not just mums, but um, I think it was Simon Pegg that said I do a good mum, so I think that's a great compliment. So Absolutely. happy to be of service. Yes. Happy to be of service. Yes. Now, I was being a little glib and all because that's underrating what you do because it's a really well-written mum. It's not just a stage mum in that sense, AJ. She has her own stuff going on and all. She's a very complex kind of character as well. I presume that spoke to you when you got the script. Yeah, it did. That's really well observed, actually. I, I too, thought, well, you know, Tina is not just an ornament. She has her own emotional journey. And in fact, she has some sort of an awakening because through her own shortcomings and lack of sort of wanting to let go in the beginning, through her own experience at the campsite, at the holiday camp, she also realises that 
her in April, um, AJ played by the amazing Mel Barlow, are just people and the communication and the love and forgiveness is so important. I mean, they're quite similar, aren't they? The pair yeah. of them, that's why they bang heads. I think with Tina, she's dealing with financial insecurity. She's, you know, just broken up with her husband and going through divorce. And she's got these three daughters. One of them's really going through a troubled phase and um, she's got a lot to deal with. So she's a human being in her own right. And I think, you know, it's very important. I thought it had a lot of strong female voices in the film and to be directed by a female book was great. And, you know, it is a kind of a true story for Marley. So I wanted to be part of that and part of, um, you know, British cinema and indie film and low budget film for someone's first feature. So, yeah. yeah. And we'll get to Marley in a second because, as you say, it's her first feature. One of the things I really liked about it was AJ's character is gay in it. And I, I thought there was going to be this thing where... Tina struggles with her coming out as gay. But what I really liked about it was the movie's past that. It begins with Tina already knowing so we don't have the tortured coming out story. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Those stories need to be told. But we've seen a lot of them and I really like the way this was she's already down with it and fine with the fact and she's almost encouraging her to have a relationship. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, thank you. Me too. I uh, Marley didn't want it to be a coming out film. Mm. It's a coming of age story. Yes. And what I loved about it is Tina's just, it's generational differences and there are ignorances and a little bit of like, it's lack of knowledge really, I think sometimes, or that mother's kind of pride or meddling or controlling. She's definitely on board with AJ's choices. And um, I love the fact that we start in that and it's more about her falling in love. And then, I mean, in the end, Tina sort of protects her and, you know, and sort of helps her go through that because, you know, she has her own experience herself, but it's, it's great. And I do think those stories need tackling. What I loved about this this film and this script is that it was witty and smart but it wasn't too heavy and mm. it deals with important issues in a really light-hearted fun way and takes the mickey out of itself you know it it really makes fun of itself in some some of the scenes you know I'm always saying things that really I don't fully know what I'm there's no awareness around it she just says things but there's a loving route to the mother's sort of um, relationship with with April and I think it's just that miscommunication that we have in life and it's yeah. about listening and allowing people to be who they are. Yeah, no, it's sweet and funny and a lot of heart. I guess that's the title, Sweetheart. But listen, yes. Mar Marley Morrison, it's a, it's her debut feature. Is there something, you know, you have an idea of someone making the first movie, they're running around like a headless chicken maybe and going, is all this going to fall apart? But probably, you know, I've I've spoken to people you know, well-known directors who look back on their first movie and say, you know, I'm never going to have that again. I know what the machine is like now and there's something magic about your first feature because all these mistakes are ahead of you and you have this kind of confidence. Was it? What's it like to be on set and be part of someone's first feature? Yeah, it's an absolute gift, actually. I experienced it myself with Dead Man's Shoes, with Shane mm. Meadows. I mean, that wasn't his first feature, but it was mine and a yeah. few others. And real this electricity and this energy because nobody's there for the money everybody's there for one purpose and to make this creative you know endeavor work and 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 have ideas and collaborate and I think for me when I I, I read the script I knew there was potential I asked could I meet Marley I met Marley and Michelle I loved Marley straight away and Michelle I loved the way she was really invested in film she was knowledgeable really humble it was about her own experience in parts and I 
I always want to support indie film and give back because mm. what it does for me is it it helps me learn and it keeps my feet on the ground. I think you can go off and do big budget things and that is great as well because it's, it's it serves a purpose. As long as the story's there and whether I'm a big part or a small part of that story and that jigsaw, I want it to be authentic and I like those experiences when they're, they're fresh and new for people and I just I love Marley. She'd loved uh, she'd seen This Is England and loved it and was a big fan and of the show and myself and it was really lovely to hear her talking about my work and just saying look it, it'd be a dream to work with you and I actually feel the same about her now because I definitely know she's going places and she's very interesting and really talented as were the rest of the gang the cast and crew mm. so it's a privilege for me yeah. Great. And listen, just I was reading up on you a bit, even though we've spoken before, I was reminding myself of your considerable CV. But life, your working life as an actor began, I guess, in your mid 20s, because before that, even though I'm sure you've done bits and pieces in school, like a lot of actors, but you were in the airline business. Yes, you have had a really um, sort of odd, you know, unconventional journey into professional acting. I mean, I I started acting when I was eight or nine at school and then I did my first play, The Sound of Music. And then I kind of fast forward doing my exams. You know, my father passes away. I think, okay, working class family. I can't afford drama school. Just going to get a job. And I worked at aerospace for a while. Then I went off on the airlines because I wanted to learn a language and travel. I did that for five years. But and you were a hostess. I was an air hostess for Japanese airlines. It was an amazing job. I mean, I was earning a fortune and learning to speak the language. I was there most of the month. You know, I would spend a lot of time in Japan. It was a real gift. But I had this yearning to to act and I had a calling and I always acted whilst I was on the airline so I would have private tuition and learn Mm. about Stanislavski and Meisner I went to Questers when I left Japan Airlines and in Ealing and I worked full-time it was always I would have this in mind this dream and then I would work to earn money to pay my keep and eventually met Shane Meadows when I was 28 or 30 I think I think I might have been around 30 and we made Dead Man's Shoes and it kind of changed for me from then on because I did struggle even after that for a little while getting jobs and breaking into TV but eventually after the you know a lot of persistence and hard work and self-belief I I guess that fear left me and I realized okay I can do this and I want to do it full time and things have just evolved from there so yeah it does take a long time to to sort of establish yourself and like you say you know it going back to the don't want to go back but going back to the bit about mums I was I think about five or six years ago, I was like, I need to play. People need to give me different roles. And Mm. I've had them now, you know, but actually working through that, I've realized that like we just talked about these people, it's a gift to see Mm -hmm. things like it was in this film from her perspective. And, you know, it's it's not the label it's what you do with the role and and, you know in the part of the story so I let go of that sort of resentment and I I threw myself really into it as much as possible and um yeah I've had a few I've got a lot of very good looking screen children (laughs) (laughs) you know it's funny we were talking to actress Helen Behan last week who also got a break from Shane Meadows so there you go he's he's given plenty of people their breaks. Listen, finally then, people can see you uh, opposite uh, Craig Davis now on uh, The Cleaner on BBC, which I know people are enjoying. But I have to just ask you briefly, 
if you don't mind in closing about Afterlife because that's the last time I spoke to you and that was season two at the time and I know season three is in the offing which is wonderful but have you been like people expect Ricky Gervais shows to be successful that's what he does he's like the George Martin of of TV right so there's no surprise there but what has been surprising I think is the way that show has been taken to people's hearts particularly around you know, people who are bereaved, like it, it's really been incredible. The stuff I see about it online and, and the interaction that yeah. people all over the world have discovered that in a, sh- in, in a way that a lot of shows don't. Have you been surprised by the reaction to it? We, I think we all have. We've all been literally blown away. I've been stopped when I was in America. And mm. um, I think it's the biggest show I've ever been in that you know the the one that's worldwide global and people have stopped me while I've been on holiday and said please you know you're amazing please tell Ricky this has changed my life and we was doing a QA and a on Sunday um, for the Evening Standard Stories and we were all talking about how it was created and our experience and really it's just it is a it's a gift I think people love it because we all know this is going to happen mm. to us we're going to experience it at some level and it's one thing we don't talk about and what I think it does is it's it's for the everyman it connects us and it makes us feel like we're not alone and it's it's about connection and love and and yeah just not experiencing things alone and I think that's why it's resonated because He's very down to earth, Ricky. He's very, very smart and he doesn't really mess around and he kind of gets straight to the point with things. And I think the simplicity, but the complexity, paradoxically at the same time of this show has really touched. It's like the language of the heart, isn't it? Mm. Well, talking of hearts, I will just remind people that Sweetheart will be in Irish cinemas next Friday. That's the 8th of October. Joe Hartley plays Tina, uh, a wonderfully written character and more importantly, a wonderfully active character. Joe, lovely to talk to you again. Oh, thank you so much, John. That's so kind of you. And what a great segue, that hearts and hearts and hearts. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Joe, you know. (laughs) That's it, that's it. Oh, cows! (laughs) Did you realise that the breeding of cows is like the number one cause of deforestation? What? I'm going to go and check us in. Are you coming? Why do you guys all just look the same? What's the Wi-Fi code? There isn't any Wi-Fi. I was perfectly fine at home. But mum insisted. Why's not that Jesus jumper? You can be gay and, you know... Here we go. Look like a girl. (sighs) Why can't I just do what I want to do? Because it changes every five minutes. That's why. Like your hat? No. Like normal. Thanks. I'm Isla, by the way. AJ. They all look so happy. Like... They exist in some parallel universe. What is wrong with you? You're 17. Everything's wrong with me. A clip there from the new movie, Sweetheart, which will be in selected Irish cinemas next Friday, the 8th of October. And before that, you heard me talking to Joe Hartley, who stars in that, but also about Ricky Gervais's afterlife and giving up being an air hostess to become an actress. And my thanks to the lovely Joe Hartley. Up next, travel writer Fionn Davenport on his favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time, News Talk's TV and movie show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well known about their favourite movie. Fionn Davenport is a travel writer and broadcaster. He is the author of literally dozens of guidebooks for the Lonely Planet, including famous ones, I would dare say, for Dublin and Ireland. And he's just won US Travel Writer of the Year. He's also the co host of the Golf Weekly podcast on Off the Ball. And I'm delighted to say he's agreed to join me to chat about his favourite movie. Fionn, how are you, sir? I'm very well, John. Thank you for having me on. My absolute pleasure. And sorry it's taken so long, but, you know, 
good things and all that. So listen, <laughs> when you uh, tweeted me last night what your favorite movie was, it it's a humdinger. Will you just tell our listeners? My favorite film after a little bit of thought, it came to me as a very obvious one. It's one that I've loved since I was a very young teenager when it was first introduced to me by my own father. And it is Carol Reed's The Third Man. Oh. Now you're preaching to the converted here. So I don't want to go down, you know, an Orson Welles, Carol Reed rabbit hole because we could. So let's keep it general enough to start with anyway. Just remind people what's going on in The Third Man. Okay, so The Third Man tells the story of a fella called Harry Lyme, who you don't really see. And this is kind of the genius of the film. You don't meet until maybe not quite half way through the film you've heard his name and so holly martins is an american pulp fiction writer who arrives in post-war vienna uh, to uh, upon discovering that his best friend harry lyme has died and as he walks around he uncovers that not all is as it seems and so this mystery unravels why is it your favorite movie Oh, for so many different reasons. Uh, one is the cinematography is magnificent. The black and white, the the, the side angles were, you know, like you think the, the filmmaker whose name now escapes me, or sorry, the, the cameraman or the, the director of photography could have used a spirit level where his, all his <laughs> camera angles are all askew. Um, Carol Reed's direction, in it's, it's a masterpiece of film noir. It's hugely influenced by Roberto Rossellini and the neorealist school that emerged like immediately after World War II. It's based on a screenplay and short story by, written by Graham Greene. It stars Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, Trevor Howard, and the absolutely beautiful Alida Valley. And all of these factors combine to make this incredibly taut, I want thriller is is really kind of a reductive phrase, but it's it's a film it's a film really about the human condition as it's been affected by World War Two, by the Holocaust, by the bomb in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It's about how man sees himself in the aftermath of these catastrophes, of these terrible, terrible uh, things, and so the setting. Uh, is really quite beautiful, is set in post-war Vienna, which is reduced to half rubble. It's been divided by uh, into the four powers. So you yeah. have you have the Russian side, the American side, the British side, and the French side. And the city is kind of torn between these four sides. And the action takes place in between though these post-war tensions. And, yeah. and it's an extraordinary, extraordinary bit of filmmaking. Yeah. And Vienna just, it makes you want to go there. This kind of dark, but beautiful mm. f- city s- full of spies and that gorgeous gang, gang, gang theme tune, the, the, the sitar, I think it is. I fr- the zither, yes. Zither, I forgot yes, to mention sorry. it. Anton Karras's zither, which um, Carol Reed heard him play an instrument, the instrument that I presume nobody had ever heard of beforehand. Mm. And, and that I still can't sudden, even pronounce. <laughs> and all of a sudden he goes, right. I And if you think about it, the entire soundtrack of the film is just Anton Karras's zither. That's yeah. it. There is nothing else. And and he he builds the tension. He has this memorable theme music that then later influenced Nino Rota, who then wrote the Godfather music. So so from this film, you can draw threads that that bring us into 
you know, into the kind of the, the, the big, big films of modern cinema. Um, what I like also is, is, is that it's very much a Graham Greene film as mm-hmm. much as it is a Carol Reed direction. But so you have Harry Lyme, Orson Welles, who's this unlikely anti-hero yeah. in that. So what he, what, what he is engaged in is, is uh, taking penicillin, diluting it, and then selling it on the black market, which leads to terrible illnesses and children with meningitis. And so the crimes of which he is guilty are repulsive. And yet this character that you meet as the light shines on his face and a mm. cat kind of is curling around his feet and this little small smile and straight away you're kind of drawn into this character who, who, as I said, whose crimes are terrible. And, and what it does is it encapsulates what green is trying to do is, 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 I guess, write this parable of conscience of betrayal of no moral absolutes and and Mm. which reflects green's own struggles with his own Catholicism. And, and, and the idea that like there's this wonderful moment and the famous scene obviously is when uh, Joseph Cotton, the Holly Martin's character, the naive American and Harry Lyme are up on the wheel in the mm. Prater in Vienna. And, uh, you know, Harry Lyme points down, look at, the, look at all those people below. They just look like ants. And he mm. goes, what, you know, would you really care Holly if one of them just stopped moving? If I paid you 20,000 pounds or whatever it was, and there's this line then, he says, nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't, so why should we? And as I said, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, in mm. the aftermath of the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's the horror. It's the horror of Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah. It's that horror that says, we, we go on, but all of these moral absolutes that we took as given going back into the middle ages have now been completely eradicated. So mm. how do we, how do we proceed? And I think the third man is this extraordinary kind of picture of that terrible moral crisis. Mm. And of course that speech on the big wheel also contains the famous line, you know, what did the Swiss ever give us? The oh, cuckoo yeah. clock, which is, you know, it, it, which is almost improvised. Completely... Yeah. By, no, so Yeah. Incredible. That is brilliantly described. Can I, this is like bringing, you know, coal to Newcastle, but you might appreciate this. I have been to Vienna twice, I think. And the last time I was there, because I'm a big fan of the movie, I did the third man tour. And I have to say it was deeply underwhelming because a lot of it was shot in a soundstage back in London. So certainly the tour, just if you're ever writing great movie tours of the world for your next book or whatever, the third man isn't one of them, unfortunately, because you don't see a lot of where the action was filmed. Just by the by. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm not really <laughs> surprised. It's a bit yeah. like, I mean, you think, I mean, how do you, how do you make a tour? I guess you can go into the, the sewers and take a ride on the, on the wheel in the Prater, but it's a bit like, I know my wife did uh, a Sound of Music tour. Right. Again, also in Austria and uh, in Salzburg and the bus like flew by the Von Trapp's house that you could see behind a tree and the guide went, (laughs) and that's where the Von Trapp's live and just moved on. So perhaps, perhaps it's Austrian tourism don't recognize the importance of actually stopping in situ and actually talking about something so you can absorb the atmosphere. But I guess with The Third Man, it's a film very much about atmosphere in 1946 Mm. 
Yeah, true. And not, <laughs> not yeah. really. Yeah, fair enough. Maybe my expectations were too yeah. high. Well, listen, that is supremely well described and thought about. Listen, I talked about Vienna there, and I mentioned in the intro you being a well-known travel writer. I was talking to Jasper Wynn, another well-known travel oh, writer, yeah. not so long ago in a different life. And he was saying, to a certain extent, the internet has completely changed up travel writing. Is, is that your sense of it as well? Because your travel writing career would have began before, I suppose, internet was everything. Not mm. that you're that old, but now no, no, I'm, I'm it, that old. It, yeah. it, it has clearly changed. So, how has it affected what you do? Jasper's actually right, and it's a very good question. In fact, it's the key question for travel writers, perhaps not for readers of travel guides, but uh, for travel writers. So, when I started my career. In the early nineties, I I remember I was I remember when the internet was first installed, and, and I said to the guy installing, I was like, "Yeah, but what does it do? Like, what's it for?" <laughs> and uh, like, which really says a lot about my my inability to predict the future. Um, <laughs> but so at the time, is is that you know in the big wide world that we were in? So I, I remember writing a guide to Vietnam. And when a lot of people wouldn't have known the first thing about Vietnam, so they would pick up the Lonely Planet Guide and they would follow it almost religiously, you know. And and to a certain extent, the challenges at the time were like to write a good guide that guided people well and, mm. you know, directed them and made them feel safe. But at the same time, encouraged them to step off the beaten path and try different experiences. And And so there was a real sense of responsibility about being a travel writer. Now, not that there isn't today, but as you said, the role has changed so much. So w- with the advent of the internet, what you have is an, just a tsunami of information. So literally at the, you know, at, at the click of your fingers, you have 50 million pages about Vietnam readily accessible. So the travel writer then becomes kind of, the role of the travel writer becomes twofold. One is to curate mm. all, some of this information, is to you know, separate the wheat from the chaff or, or, you know, dismiss the dross and kind of stick to the good stuff, but also kind of redefine experiences. Um, and so you write about different ways of experiencing a destination and, 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 you know, that's an incredibly valid way to pursue our profession, but, but Jasper is entirely correct. I found that, um, like, whereas once upon a time you would meet a traveler in a strange land and, uh, the, you know, they would be holding on to the guidebook almost for, not for dear life, but certainly as the one conduit towards yeah. getting through the place. Nowadays, yeah. that's just not the case. Like yeah. you literally like, you know, you use Google Maps, you, 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 you type something into your phone, like you're your own guide in so mm. many different ways. And as I said, you have so much information at your disposal that, you know, people like me are kind of anachronistic, um, but there- you know. We are now curators of travel. Well, you knowledge. curate very well. And listen, then finally, and it's it's a very obvious question, but you know, Billy Connolly says, how does a guy who drives a snowplow get to work? How does a travel writer manage, travel writer manage in a pandemic when he can't travel? How was the last 18 months for you? Uh, uh, very, very challenging. Yeah. Uh, I'm a very lucky person in that I uh, have a nice house. I have a absolutely brilliant wife. Uh, and we have a lovely dog. So the three of us and our bicycles, we kept each other company and tried to fill the days with uh, positive things. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie. You know, when you look at your, it's not just, it reminds me a bit of 
uh, the old parable of the fellow who wakes up out of a coma and says, oh, I'd love to go to my favorite restaurant and names it. And then people go, what do you mean restaurant? As in the whole idea <laughs> of restaurant has just disappeared. Yeah. And so it is, is that like I spent a chunk of a year thinking, Jesus, well, well, you know, will will i have a very narrow kind of skill set and uh will that ever be useful ever again and here i am at the at the tender age of 52 or 53 do i have to retrain in something that i've never thought about doing before so really that's kind of how i spent my pandemic on the one hand really kind of happy at home and on the mm-hmm. other hand living in terror for my future life well, I fear, or I think, I, you shall travel again. You are a fascinating guy to talk to on any subject, I have to say. His favourite movie is The Third Man. Fionn Davenport, thank you very much. Thanks, John. I used to believe in God. Well, I still do believe in God only. I believe in God and mercy and all that, but the dead are happier dead. They don't miss much here, poor devils. Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fella said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Ah, yes. The iconic scene with Orson Welles in a big wheel uh, discussing life in the universe and the amorality of things and the Swiss, of course. And uh, my thanks to Fionn Davenport, who you heard there talking about, well, being a travel writer, but but ostensibly the third man being his favourite movie. And what a wonderfully articulate and insightful man Fionn Davenport is. That is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. Next week, I'll be talking to Angeline Ball about her new movie, Deadly Cuts, and a bit more besides, so I'm looking forward to that. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. Have a good week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you all next week.